If you gave to Element last year in 2015 in any way that was trackable, like you didn't, you know, dump your change in there or like cash, but you actually put in an envelope or wrote a check or gave online or something like that, uh, we're trying to save money and not have to put stamps on all the giving statements from the year. Uh, so if you want to, you can go in the back today, like if you like to do your taxes early. Their their IRS is accepting e-filing on Tuesday. So you need all this, so you can go in, go in the back, and, and they'll have your giving statements for you. If not, we can mail them to you, but it's like mailing a, mailing a thing is like 10 bucks now, right? No, it's like, what is it, four, is Kim Simpson in here? How much is it? 40, 49 cents? Okay, so, so basically like two of these things is like a buck. If you want us just to mail it to you, give us a dollar. We'll put a stamp on it. <laughs> no, but if you grab them in the back, okay. if you don't pick them up, we will mail them out to you. I bought a ton of these forever stamps a while ago, so I don't know how much stamps are at this point. So, wow, 49 cents? Maybe I'll deliver in the mail. <laughs> Just drop them off. Anyway, so, so grab one of those. Uh, welcome to Element. If, if you are new, I usually don't ask people how much stamps are during service, uh, but there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes, again, on all the communion tables throughout the room. Since we're starting the book of Acts, on the front you get all the verses, uh, some announcements inside. You get uh, these things go just a little bit deeper, some notes that go deeper, and some questions that go along with it. And on the back you can write some of your own notes in there as well. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It's called Uversion. You click on Live and Uversion. It will come up by GPS in your smartphone. You'll get sermon notes and questions and verses and all that goes along with the message. But you won't get to actually write a bunch of stuff down unless you're like going back and forth because you'll get lost and it's just crazy. So if you want to write, if you like, you know, you're like touch, you like, you know, you're like a kinesthetic learner. You want like what? If you like to write things down, take one of the sermon notes. You, you'll be fine. Uh, my name is Aaron. I am one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me? Reading of God's Word. This is Acts chapter 3, verse 18, and it says, But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that is, Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us to be a people who believe and trust the things that have been handed down to us, and that we would live these out in our lives because we would understand that you have had one plan of redemption and that you have brought it to fruition, and that we as your children will live in that, lifting you up as you give us great joy, because we give you great glory. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so we are starting this brand new series today, hence the whole decor has been changed. It's meant to resemble, you know, like you throw a rock into a pond and ripples go out. That's kind of our ripple thing. Brian was up here painting all last week. Getting very frustrated, having to, to mix his own colors and everything, but it was, it was okay. Uh, this series is going to be expository, which means we're going to go through verse by verse through the book of Acts. But my warning to you in this is we're going to stop in the middle at Acts 13. Essentially, we're going to cover the book of Acts following the original apostles right up till the time the book switches over to the apostle Paul. The book of Acts kind of makes a change right there, so it's a good place for us to stop for a bit. Maybe we'll come back to it in a year or, or something like that. Uh, but even those, just that first half is going to take us through the end of September, just to do those first 12 chapters, because there's so many stories and so many things going on. I think it's going to be a lot of fun, but we also don't want to send you guys to another year and a half study of the Bible. We have heard your pleas for mercy. You're welcome. You're welcome. At the beginning of fall, we're going to do a 10-week series leading up to Christmas, and we're going to call it What in the World? Michelle G. said we should do our own theme song like Saturday Night Live, like, what's up with that? What's up with that? So we might come up with something. I don't know. As long as I don't have to do that, I might be okay. 
But what in the world is like the things when I read the scriptures, I still go, man, what in the world is God, what in, what in the world is that? And so I did like 10 of these, and we're going to talk to those. During that series, we're also going to give you three by five cards to write down your like what in the world things, and we're going to answer those the following summer. So if you want to find out answers, you've got to hang out all the way till 2017. It's like bait and switch. It's, it, that's, <laughs> that's, that's how we roll. Okay, so today... I want to start off, uh, and I'm going to give you a lot of information today. I'm not going to apologize to that, because most of it, if you've been around church any length of time, uh, it is information you've heard before, so it's not really going to be too much overload. If you are new, it's information you need to actually hear and understand what Christians are supposed to believe. So we're going to start Acts, not by really talking about the book of Acts. I'm like, what? I know, I know. But I'm going to give you some background on Luke and the book of Luke that leads into the book of Acts. So if your Bible, open to Luke chapter 1. As a professional today, I'm going to take you all the way through Luke's gospel in one day. You will get whiplash, but it's okay. We will pray for you and wrap you up, and and you'll be okay. I'm going to do cliff notes. Uh, Luke is like the first volume, and Acts is like the sequel. So they both kind of start the same way. Luke 1, verses 1 through 4, this is what it says. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seems good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Now keep your place in Luke 1, but flip over to Acts chapter 1 real quick. Okay, it's just John, Acts, so it's just two books over. John Acts, Acts chapter 1, verse 1, kind of goes the same way. It says, in the first book, what's that first book? Luke. See, you guys are like, oh, this is great. O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up, after he had given commands to the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So if you have a favorite band or, or a favorite uh, author of some sort, you ever like in a band look at the liner notes like, oh, who'd they write this stuff to? What's this song about? And you kind of see that. Or your favorite author, you look at, oh, who'd they write this to? Their mom, their grandma, their dog, their fish. Jesus, you know, what they write it to? You look at that, so, and it kind of gives you a background of why they wrote that thing. Luke starts both of his books by dedicating them to this guy, Theophilus. I know in Acts it says, O Theophilus, like, O, O Sheila, right? But, but, but O, it's just a term of friendship. It's not his first name. It's not like Oprah's Magazine O or anything like that. What it tells you is Theophilus might have started off as something else, but by the time Luke gets to the book of Acts, they've actually become friends. And so he drops the most excellent and just uses O. So is there any way, maybe if we understand who Theophilus is and what that was like, would it help us understand Luke's focus in Luke and Acts? And I think the answer is yes. But as I kind of take you through this, you must understand first off that honestly, nobody really knows who Theophilus really was. Nobody knows. Uh, I'm going to give you a couple theories. Uh, We're pretty sure that it was a person (laughs) because it's actually addressed to a specific individual, even though the message is intended for all Christians. So first, uh, most excellent from Luke is one of the most often given titles referring to someone of rank or honor like a Roman official. I know we hear it and we think Bell and Ted's Excellent Adventure, like San Dimas High School Football Rocks, most excellent. I have seen the movie a few times. So, in Acts 24, verse 2, Paul is going before a Roman official named Felix. Uh, Felix means happy. 
Okay, So he's going before him, and there's a guy there that's kind of bringing some charges against Paul. Acts 24, verse 2 says, And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. So he's addressing him, and he's literally saying, you know, Mr. Happy, or most excellent Happy, you know, it's... Don't name your kid happy, okay? Just, just don't do it. It's just, it's just weird. One of the most common theories is Theophilus then was a Roman officer, a high-ranking official in the Roman government who had trusted Jesus with his life. And so Luke is writing this account for him to know what he had been taught. This guy's a convert. Another possibility is Theophilus was a wealthy and influential man in the city of Antioch. There are second century documents that have been found that point to this guy, Theophilus, who was a great lord and leader of the city of Antioch during the time of Luke. So some scholars believe that Theophilus was a wealthy person and a benefactor who supported Paul and Luke on their missionary journeys. And this would account for Luke wanting to write everything out that they're doing, giving a detailed account of what happened. Is Theophilus getting what he paid for? If you have ever supported an, an overseas missionary, typically monthly, they will send you a little newsletter that says, hey, this is what we're doing, this is what's going on, please keep sending us money, don't let us starve. It's that kind of thing. It's like, this is what's going on. Um, another theory gaining popularity today is that Theophilus was a Jewish high priest at the time when Luke was around. His name was Theophilus ben Ananus. He was a high priest in Jerusalem from 37 to 41 AD. Another theory, and this is one that I like, I don't know if it's true, but I really kind of like it, is that Theophilus was the Roman lawyer who defended Paul at his trial in Rome. And people who like this theory, like me, this lawyer theory, believe that Luke's purpose in writing Luke and Acts was to write a defense of Christianity, like a legal brief. And if that theory is correct, then Luke's writings were designed to defend Paul in court against charges of insurrection and also at the same time defend Christianity against the charge that it was an illegal anti-Roman religion. See why I like it? kind of a cool little theory. Now, I think all of these theories could hold some possibilities. Some of them can even go together, but in the end, Theophilus is just most likely a high-ranking influential Gentile who Luke wants to provide this detailed historical account of Christ and then the spread of the gospel throughout the Roman Empire. Again, we don't really know who Theophilus was, but you know Luke's intent of writing. His intent is that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So Luke writes this historical account of the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Acts then paints the picture, the detailed account of how Christianity starts to spread throughout the Roman Empire so that you would know with certainty the things you have been taught. We read it so we would know with certainty the things that we have been taught. The name Theophilus, it literally means loved by God. It can mean friend of God. There are some people throughout the history of the church who said, well, Theophilus isn't an individual. He's all Christians. Like the early monk Beattie, he wrote this. Theophilus means lover of God or beloved of God. Therefore, anyone who is a lover of God may believe that this work of Acts was written for him because the physician Luke wrote it in order that the reader might find health for his soul. I think it was actually written to a person. So how does Luke start this off? Right to Theophilus, what do I want you to know? What are the certainty of the things that you have been taught? And so where do you think Luke starts? See, I know you're in church and you want to say Jesus, right? Because 50% of the time you're right, right? I ask a question like, Jesus, yes, not here, Okay. <laughs> Luke starts off with the birth of John the Baptist, this miraculous birth. Uh, and so, because John is the guy that is going to come like Elijah, has been prophesied in the Old Testament, someone like Elijah was going to come to prepare the way for the Messiah. And that's going to be John. And so John starts off like most of us do. We have a mom and a dad, right? Like all of us. Uh, his dad is Zechariah, who's a priest. So John is like a pastor's kid. His mom's name is Elizabeth. And his dad, they're very old when John is born. They haven't had 
had kids. In the Hebrew world, kids are seen as a blessing. The more kids you have, the more blessed you are. I know in American society, we think that's just like a horrible thing. But in this culture, and I think in God's eyes, kids are beautiful and great. And so they wanted you know, to be blessed by God, so they wanted kids. And, and so they kept praying, God, please give us kids. In Luke 1, 8 through 17, Zechariah's division gets called to serve at the temple. He gets called to go inside to offer incense in the inner place. The other priests are outside praying, and bam, uh, when he's inside by himself, an angel of God shows up, and the angel says, God is going to answer your prayer. You are going to have a little boy. He will be like the prophet Elijah. So it all starts coming together. He says he will reconcile families. It will be amazing. By the way, call him John. Now, Zechariah doubts. I don't know if maybe he's inside and the incense is overwhelming. He's like, maybe I'm... No, patchouli oil can do that to you. You've been around it too long. You know, or what's up? So maybe he thinks, you know, am I seeing a vision? Is this really true? So he questions. And the angel says, look, I am Gabriel. I am like the Joe Namath of angels. You know, you can't question me. And because you didn't believe, you're going to be silent for the whole pregnancy. Now, I told you back in Coloring Book All-Stars, and I'm sure Elizabeth, his wife, was very happy for the baby and the quiet husband. The entire time. Now, the next thing that actually happens in Luke is you get the birth of Jesus foretold. But let's just stick with John's story for a little bit, okay? John is born a few months before Jesus. He's raised as the angel instructed. And part of that is that no fermented drink ever touched his lips. And you're like, well, well, why is that? Well, because John's a weirdo, okay? And the last thing you want is a weirdo with a few drinks in him, right? You just don't want that to happen. So John goes out to live in the woods. And I swear I wrote this message a long time ago. And I wrote, like Grizzly Adams. I know, right? So sad. I was too, when, I, when I was a kid and I watched Grizzly Adams, I was like, dear Jesus, let that happen to me. There'd be nothing better to live in the woods with a bear as a pet. Right? Amen. Either that or a super suit like the greatest American hero. But one or the other. I, I, one, or, one or the other. Now, Mark 1.6 tells you that he wore camel hair, he had, a, he had a big old belt, and so John's just kind of one of those guys. I think when we get to heaven, we'll meet him and we'll see, but I picture him with like this, you know, this crazy hairdo and these wild eyes because he has this diet. He is raised on locusts and honey, bugs and sweets. So you can't raise a kid on bugs and sweets and have him just turn out completely normal. It's like, why is our kid weird? I don't know. John, you want some more bugs? You know, just, it's just, just kind of weird. So, so John comes out of the woods at 30 years old, and he's, you know, funky clothes, crazy hair, probably bugs in his teeth. And what, what's he yelling? What's he preaching? He's preaching this word, repent. Now, today when we hear the word repent, we think of someone standing on the street corner going, oh, evil, repent, like, and, you know, in people's faces all the time. But in the scriptures, in the Hebrew mindset, repent meant teshuva. It's this word that meant to return. Return to who God is calling you to be. Return to the place that God has placed you. Return to God. Return and follow him. So he's preaching this. John has a zeal for people. He is saying, you are enemies of God. You have run away from who he is. And we need to go and become the people God has called us to be. He says, God is upset with the sin of the world. And there is a center of of this world, and it is God and his coming Messiah. And so John, the story of John goes all the way through the third chapter of Luke's gospel. Now, something kind of cool happens back in Luke 2 with the birth of Jesus, and this all kind of goes together. In Luke 2, they've got these shepherds, and they're out in the fields watching over their flock by night. And in, and in Luke 2.14, the angels show up, and they sing this song, and they say, Glory to God in the highest, and peace on whom his favor rests. Now, the word glory there is the word doxa. 
Now, for a Hebrew person, the word glory was always this word kavod, and kavod meant weight or significance. And so Luke, when he comes in, this glory is being sung, he's got to think, okay, what word am I going to use to make this idea of God's glory come across? Because, because Greeks don't understand the word kavod, so he chooses the word doxa, doxa to God in the highest heavens. Doxa at that point, it, mean, it meant thoughts or opinions, which means there is God's doxa of things. And the way that God sees things is the way that things really are. Doxa is God's true thoughts and opinions about something. Now, we kind of have a doxa, right? But our doxa is all over the place. It depends on how we're feeling, how we're thinking, if we're angry, broke up on the wrong side of the bed, did our political candidate get elected or not? You know, it's, it's all over the place. It shifts. Our doxa is all over the place. Now, eventually, in regards to God, this word doxa came to mean God's unchanging essence. God's glory is found in his unchanging essence of who he is. God is who he always has been. He does not shift. He does not change. And the way God sees things is how things truly are. So how does Luke speak of Jesus' birth into the world? God's unchangingness has arrived, and you will see it in the flesh because Jesus is born. So you go back to Luke 3. John is baptizing people. The religious leaders are mad because they believed only Gentiles and evil people needed to get baptized, not Jews because they have the right pedigree. But John is baptizing everybody. He's everyone who's religious and Jews and Gentiles, everyone. And they keep saying to John, what do we do? What does John say? Repent. Return. Return to who God's calling you to be. And then what happens is Jesus shows up and Jesus gets baptized. Why does Jesus get baptized? There's a lot of speculation, but I think Jesus did it to identify with John's ministry. God's view had never changed, and and Jesus saying, yes, what John is doing is right and true. He is preparing the way. He validates John's ministry. And as soon as he is baptized, that ministry transitions from John to Jesus. The baton gets passed because he prepared the way, and now Jesus, the way, is here. In John 1.29, John looks up and he sees Jesus come and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, you have to understand, John is a priest's son. The whole temple system had been set up for years with this bloody sacrificial system where you brought in live animals and you slaughtered them and the blood flowed out the back of the temple like a river. People say, how's that going to fix anything? It doesn't. It's a picture. So John, as a Jew, makes this amazing statement. He says the entire temple system was there to point to the type of death that Jesus would die for all people. A pure, unblemished lamb gets slaughtered by the priest brutally. And what happens, Isaiah 52 and 53 says, Jesus was like a sheep before the shearers, that he was the lamb of God. And every evil thing that we have ever done was laid on him. And that perfect lamb takes away our sin. God declares us clean. Why? Because God's view had never changed. God's doxa had never changed. It's always moved forward. It's the same plan. How do we get clean? John looks up and he says, That guy, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You want to be clean? You need that guy right there. That's just the first three chapters of Luke. Amazing, right? So in Luke chapter 4, after Jesus is baptized, he goes off into the desert for 40 days, which symbolizes a whole lot of things, but mostly it symbolizes the Exodus story. That Jesus has come, and he is there to lead God's people into true freedom, into hope, into peace again. Jesus comes out of the wilderness, and he begins to teach, preach, and heal. He goes to his hometown first to proclaim the truth there, and they call him a nut job, and they want to stone him for blasphemy. They refuse his authority in his hometown. And so Jesus miraculously gets out of a sticky situation, then he goes on to other places and proves his 
authority by casting out demons, healing people, and teaching in other synagogues. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. Jesus uh, calls his disciples in Luke 5. He begins to teach and lead and guide them. A disciple was someone who wanted to be just like their rabbi, to do exactly what their rabbi did, right? And so how does Jesus see things? You know, what, what is his view? How does he bring glory to God? Well, in Luke 5.13, according to Luke, Jesus touches a man with leprosy. A holy man, a rabbi, a priest, a Pharisee, a scribe. They would never touch somebody with leprosy because they're considered unclean. And yet Jesus does it. And so Jesus teaches that God's view of things is that God cares for all people. God cares for the lost and the broken and those everybody thinks are worthless. God cares for them. Those who are pushed to the margins of society, he seeks out. Jesus will then go on to heal a paralyzed man, speaking about the greater necessity for sins to be forgiven than physical healing, and yet Jesus will actually do both of those things for him. Jesus shows he has the power over sins, and that by forgiving them, he is God in the flesh, because sins are committed against God, and only God can forgive them. So in Luke chapter 5, verses 36 to 39, Luke keeps bringing us back to, you know, who Jesus is and what he came to do in God's glory. And this is a parable that Jesus tells here. He says, no one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins, and no one after drinking the old wine... uh, Desires the new, for he says the old is good. Now, maybe you've heard this parable before. Maybe not. And maybe now you're like people who have heard it a million times and still think, what in the world does that even mean? So that can be in our series of what in the world, right? Like, what? That's, that's the weirdest thing I've ever heard. New, old, but it's good, but not good. What, what's going on? And in the context of where Jesus is teaching, this is kind of about fasting and stuff. But there's so much bound up in these words of the mission of Jesus. When Jesus speaks of old wine, he's talking about the ancient Jewish faith and practices. God's doxa, God's view, has never once changed. Now, Rabbis understood the Bible must be interpreted. And so they understood their role in their communities was to look through the scriptures and meditate and discuss and pray and make those decisions of how to live those things out. Rabbis were like ancient interpreters helping people understand what it means to live out a text. So say you had something like a Sabbath command, right? Don't work on the Sabbath. A rabbi would make lists of what he permitted and what he forbade on the Sabbath. A rabbi's desire is to get as close as possible to what God originally intended in the commands at hand. I think since Jesus wrote them, he knew. And so a rabbi's set of rules are called his yoke, like on an oxen. So when you followed a rabbi, you were following him and he placed his yoke upon you. Jesus comes and he says in Matthew Matthew 11, 29 and 30, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The intent of a rabbi having a yoke wasn't just to interpret words. It was to show how to live them out. And so Jesus in this parable is showing that this ancient faith, this, this Judaism, it, it has never changed. He became the fulfillment of that. A lot of Christians think that Jesus did away with Judaism. Jesus says that's not the case. In the most basic sense, Jesus says God wants fresh wineskins for this wine. In Luke 5, Jesus says true grace for the ancient faith has to be renewed in all men. And that God makes us new so we can actually hold the wine that God intends. I know you're, you read the parable and all you think is, Wine, like it, got it. I don't know what anything else is talking about. This is, this is what it's talking about. It's, it's that this ancient faith of God's salvation, one plan, redemption, shown, partially what the Exodus looks like, brought forth in the fruition of Jesus. The ancient faith was all to point to one person coming to save us. Who was that? Jesus. 
Jesus, see, you can say at that time and you get it right. See, it's awesome. Jesus is talking about himself. He says the old wine is good. It teaches the way of faith in the one and only true God. But this wine needs fresh wineskins. Men and women must be made new to hold that wine. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This means you and I are new. This is not a different God in the Old Testament versus the New Testament. The same God fills us. We serve the same God. Brad Young says, Jesus is speaking about his purpose. He came to bring renewal and redemption through the power of the kingdom of heaven. His purpose was not to destroy the significance of the Torah, but to fulfill it. So Jesus desires these new wineskins to revitalize people enjoying this wine. This is how Luke keeps moving forward, pulling out and saying these are the things that Jesus taught. The way that Jesus sees things is the way that things really are. And he keeps teaching this. And that's just the first five chapters. In Luke chapter 6 to, to, ver- to chapter 22, you're welcome, I'm going to jump a lot, okay? Uh, Luke goes on and shows that Jesus proves he is Lord. He teaches a sermon on the mount, disciples people, teaches more people. He calms a storm, which is really amazing. He makes unclean people clean. He sends the disciples out on mission. He feeds 5,000 people. He foretells his death. He shows his glory to Peter, James, and John. He teaches his disciples how to be the greatest, how to be the, you know, the pinnacle of it all. You know how, what you do? You serve. You serve. He sends them out on mission again. He heals, he teaches, he speaks about the end of the age. He cleanses the temple. He is betrayed, arrested, crucified, and buried. Why? Because God's plan, God's view has never once changed. It has always been the same. We are a people who are mired in sin from Genesis 3. That has never changed. We break relationship with God every day. We run away. We continually dig our pit deeper and deeper and deeper. And by digging it deeper, for some reason, we think we're making things better. And we're not. We just dig it deeper. All the way back in the Torah, God promises to make atonement for his people to remove their sins. How will he do this? How is that going to happen? Jesus the most famous verse in the Bible that people hold up on the side of the football field. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God made us. We walk away. We try to become our own God. And God says, I love you. And God stoops in humility to come to us. The creator has come into human history as Jesus to be with us. We run. God pursues. This is unequaled, unyielding love. And over and over and over, Luke continues to show how Jesus preached and lived this out in his words and his parables and his actions. And eventually Jesus is beaten and spat upon by the people he made. He is nailed to a Roman cross. The crowd yells, crucify. Jesus is dying naked near death. And what does he pray? Luke 23, verse 34, Father, forgive them. Seriously. I tell you this on multiple occasions. None of us are that kind. If we were Jesus and we're hanging on the cross, we'd be like... Father, get me off this cross and smite them all. I will come and I will show you my glory and you will be sorry. That's what we would all do, but not Jesus. In John 19, 30, Jesus even says, it is finished. That means paid in full. That's what it is finished means. The death he dies, he dies in our place. The wage for sin, he pays for all people. This is why we as Christians call this good news. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4 says, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins. It's not just that he died. It's that he died for our sins. That's why it's good news. It is the only hope that we have ever had, O Theophilus. It's the only hope we've ever had. 
This is what's called atonement, or more importantly, propitiation. This is what is made at the cross of Jesus. We must be a people who, like John, say, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And now we're a people who are made new, and our sin is no longer master over us. Hebrews 9.22 says the law requires that everything be cleansed by blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So Jesus comes and he dies in our place as our perfect lamb. 1 John 4.10, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. It starts with him. Hebrews 2.17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. We call this substitutionary atonement. He died to pay the penalty for our sin. For the wages of sin is death. And Jesus goes to the cross not just as our example, but as our substitute. As our substitute. Jesus alone can reconcile a holy God and a sinful people. But that is not the end of the book of Luke. Luke goes on to tell us about resurrection and restoration. You have these people, and they go to this tomb where Jesus laid after his death. In Luke 24, verse 6, an angel is there, and an angel says, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Now, in our standard understanding, like when somebody dies and you bury them, they stay dead. Like we didn't bury Jesus in Stephen King's pet cemetery, right? But that's not what happens here. Resurrection comes along, and resurrection says everything is now different. What Jesus does in resurrection is he brings life again. He not only pays for our sin, but rises to lead us into new life, a life of mission and purpose, and that is what happens in the book of Acts. All of this comes together. This new life of resurrection explodes Resurrection does not mean that we get taken out of here to some other place. Resurrection is about this world and this life, and it's physical. Resurrection is not celebrating, oh, I won't be left behind. That's not what it's about. Resurrection is affirmation of God's good creation. That's in serious trouble because of our sin, but God rescued it with Jesus and a tomb that is empty. And if you follow Jesus, you're meant to look and see that new creation bursting forth all around you right now. You're meant to live that out because you are part of that new creation. It's all inaugurated by that empty tomb. This is the detailed account given to Theophilus that he would know with certainty the things that he had been taught. That we would know with certainty the things that we have been taught. And when you move into the book of Acts, it shows Christianity is not a fringe movement. It's that God's doxa is continuing to move forward and go forward and further and further. Justin Holcomb Wright says it was the culmination of God's plan of redemption. He says, what was seen in the shadows of the Old Testament, God finally reveals fully and through Jesus. And Luke helps us to see it all. I mean, that is Luke. And that's why when he gets to Acts, he says all that Jesus began to do and teach. Because now he sends his spirit and his spirit lives in us. And we go out and we live on mission. And we become that new creation that are his hands and feet to the world, living this out and the people we come into contact with. We are his ambassadors to this world. We are the ones that he will use. And guys, quite frankly... I don't know why he chooses to use us, because we're knuckleheads. I mean, me, I'm a, I'm a complete idiot half the time. And yet he still continues to use us and redeem us and restore us. This is the beauty of where you start in Luke and step into the book of Acts. And you will see his, his apostles do some stupid things. But you will also see them do some amazing things. Because God wants to take and use us and redeem us and move us into his mission and his plan. 
Because our God is good. This is why we talk about communion every week. It is where you break that cracker like Christ's body is broken for you. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and me. Why? Redemption and hope. He was our substitute. He paid for our sin. Everything that separated us from God and each other, Jesus took upon himself. That's what we remember. So we laid down all of our pride and all of our arrogance at the place of communion. And we live and we walk in the new life that Jesus brings to us the band's going to come up as they do there'll be some deacons and elders in the back and if you need prayer i mean if you've never heard the whole story of the gospel you just got it right there in the book of luke and if you're like wow that makes sense or i've got some more questions uh, they would love to pray and talk with you about those things if you have a prayer request for anything they'd love to pray with you about those uh, there's offering boxes in the sidewall in the back and we give because god gave so much to us giving them as part of our worship so you have the opportunity every week. And there's some food and stuff in the back. My wife even brought some avocados that are back there. So not, not to eat like right now, but, you know, but they're back there because she didn't want them to go bad. So take an avocado. It'd be really creepy if you're like, oh, this is good. <laughs> grab it or grab some food, meet some other people, and maybe take some of the notes and begin to talk through some of these things. The, the largeness of the first three and then the first five chapters of Luke and what he points to and what Jesus did to the whole thing and how it's simply mind-blowing when you think about it. That the God who made everything, when we sinned against him, rather than wiping us off the face of this planet and starting over, because he could have, decides instead to redeem us. Decides instead to save us. And what in turn that means our lives should end up looking like. What redemption and the fullness of it can actually mean of the restoration and the hope that he brings. Um, Talk with one another about that because it's simply, simply amazing. Our God is better than we can ever imagine. And I think as we move into the book of Acts, you're going to be like, these people are knuckleheads. And we're going to be like, yeah, just like us, just like us. But the gospel continues to move forward. Because God uses those people just like he uses us and wants to use us to take it forward. Today, be a people who stand amazed at the goodness of what God has done. That God's glory, God's view, God's doxa has never once changed. And then come back and be someone that lives and honors him and all things by how we live out the gospel. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who live out the gospel who understand the redemption that you have given to us. The hope that you have placed in the midst of our lives. And that, as we live that out, we would understand your strength in us. The renewal, not just of the world, but of our very own souls. And that we, in turn would listen to you more and more and more and we would see the world around us the way that you see it. That we would even begin to see ourselves the way that you see us. And that we would understand that in the same way that you led your people out of slavery so long ago, you lead us out of slavery. And you bring us into great places of freedom, great places of restoration and hope. And then you teach us to go out and be ministers and ambassadors of that reconciliation ourselves. Teach us to be those who show you are who you are in all things, that you are the great and holy and good uncreated one that created us. And that as we live for your glory, you would gain much honor 
and in turn, you as a great gift, give your people much joy. Teach us to live, giving you great glory, and live in the joy you provide. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.